Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this episode, we pick up the story of Jacob's life from chapter 35 verse 16 through to chapter 37, which marks a new section in the Genesis story. Yet before we do, let's recap Jacob's journey so far. The first thing we hear about Jacob is that during his birth, he grabs at his twin brother's heel. This act serves as a prelude to Jacob's rivalry and wrestling with his brother Esau. The narrative reports that while Esau was a skillful hunter, Jacob was a complete man who stayed at home. In this way, the narrative draws a stark contrast between Jacob, Israel's forefather, who is revered as the complete man, and his violent brother Esau. I mentioned the founder of Babylon, Nimrod, is also described as a mighty hunter, just like Esau. Therefore, the narrative portrays Esau as the bigger, older, stronger brother who employs violence, marauding other peoples to build his city and empire, much like Babylon. In contrast, Jacob stays at home and is described as complete or whole. In other words, Jacob is the complete human that Israel are called to imitate. Although these two brothers are completely different, Jacob imitates his brother and engages in mimetic rivalry with him. Jacob dresses like Esau to fool their father Isaac and steal his brother's blessing and birthright. Like all of us, Jacob wants what he can't have, that is, his brother's blessing and birthright. The desire for these things brings Jacob into rivalry with his brother until he eventually obtains the desired object through deceit. Once Jacob snatches this object from his brother's grasp, Esau laments its loss, even though he despised his birthright earlier in the narrative. Esau's newfound desire for his blessing and birthright draws him into rivalry with Jacob, who now has possession of that desired object. To escape Esau's rage, Jacob flees to Padanaram, the family home of his mother Rachel. Although the distance between them stifles the rivalry between the two brothers, Jacob soon finds another rival in Padanaram, his uncle Laban. Laban exploits Jacob, manipulating his desire for Rachel, Laban's youngest daughter. Yet once Jacob marries Rachel, securing his desired object, Laban no longer has any currency with which to exploit Jacob any further. After marrying Laban's daughters, Rachel and Leah, and fathering 11 children, Jacob flees from his rivalry with Laban, just as he had fled many years before, from his brother Esau. During his journey back to his homeland in Canaan, Jacob has somewhat of a conversion experience. Just as he engaged Esau and Laban in mimetic rivalry one night at the river crossing, Jacob wrestles with an enigmatic figure until the sun comes up. The nighttime imagery in this story may represent Jacob's blindness as he is caught in the grip of mimetic rivalry, which gives way to a new revelation. With the dawn of a new day, Jacob sees the face of God and is transformed as he receives a new name, 
Israel, the one who wrestles with God. From this point on, Jacob will no longer engage in mimetic rivalry with others, but rather he directs his rivalry towards God. This change allows Jacob to live in peace and harmony with others, including his brother Esau. Even when his honor is decimated through the defiling of his daughter, Jacob chooses the non-mimetic path and holds his peace. In this way, Jacob lays aside all rivalry, forgiving those who wrong him, and denouncing acts of violent revenge. I believe his reluctance to engage in mimetic rivalry with others and to seek revenge for wrongs done to him is what makes Jacob the complete man in the Genesis narrative. Concerned that Esau will still be angry with him upon his return to Canaan, Jacob attempts to pacify his brother by sending him extravagant gifts. To our surprise, Esau holds no animosity towards his brother. Apparently, the distance between the two brothers during Jacob's time in Padanaram allowed the rivalry between them to subside. In the end, Jacob and Esau reconcile and enjoy a cordial relationship with one another. Now we've discussed how Jacob and Esau represent the two nations of Israel and Edom, respectively. The reconciliation of these two brothers in chapter 33 encourages Israel to employ non-mimetic behavior to maintain a healthy relationship with the land of Edom, just as their forefather Jacob did before them. Let's read on now from chapter 35 verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrathah, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. During their journey, Rachel bears a child and dies. In other words, childbearing kills Rachel. Remember that earlier in the narrative, Rachel was having difficulty conceiving while her sister Leah was bearing children to Jacob. Rachel's inability to conceive kindles a strong desire within her to bear children as she engages in mimetic rivalry with her sister, Leah. Each sister attempts to outdo the other in childbearing, even forcing their female slaves to bear children as surrogates for them. In the end, this rivalry kills Rachel as she dies giving birth to Benjamin. This story serves as a reminder that mimetic rivalry will eventually destroy us if we become consumed by it. With her dying breath, Rachel names the child Benoni, that is, the son of my affliction or humility or humiliation. Jacob then changes the child's name to Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. For Jacob, Benjamin becomes his pride and joy, the child of his old age, and a final reminder of his beloved wife, Rachel. 
As Rachel's death strengthens his desire for her, Jacob clings to Benjamin as the next best thing. Just as Rachel was Jacob's favourite wife, now Rachel's sons, Joseph and Benjamin, become Jacob's most prized possessions, replacing their late mother as his desired object. This desire will cause friction and division between Jacob's sons in the coming chapters. However, for Rachel, Benjamin is a source of pain and affliction and ultimately death. As we've already discussed, the child is Rachel's desired object and the fruit of her mimetic rivalry with Leah. Even though Rachel blames the child for her suffering, the child is not the problem. The child is the mere object upon which Rachel fixes her mimetic desire as she attempts to imitate her sister's childbearing. Rachel's mimetic rivalry with her sister is the real source of her pain, suffering and death. Therefore, although Rachel and Jacob react differently to their son's birth, both of these reactions are driven by mimetic desire. Let's read on now from verse 22. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Bazamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nabaioth. And Adar bore to Esau, Eliphaz, Bazamath, bore Ruel, and Aholibama bore Jerish, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. First, let's discuss Reuben's act of sleeping with his father's concubine. To sleep with a ruler's wife or concubine was ultimately a power play in ancient Israel. Later in the biblical narrative, we see Absalom assert his claim over the throne of his father by sleeping with King David's concubines. This act brings humiliation upon the monarch and may incite violent retaliation. However, in our narrative, Jacob chooses the non-mimetic path and does not react, even though he knows about Reuben's actions. 
Jacob knows that retaliation will further alienate his son and bring bloodshed in the form of blood vengeance upon everyone. He would rather humble himself before his son than defend his own honor through violence, which would have been extremely countercultural. In this way, Jacob's example encourages us to embrace humility and denounce acts of violent retaliation. The passage then lists Israel's sons and reports the death of Isaac. Notice that Esau and Jacob bury their father Isaac, which further emphasize the peaceful relationship between them. When we choose to adopt a non-mimetic lifestyle, conflict is quenched and old enemies become new friends. Chapter 36 then goes on to recite Esau's descendants. We're told that Esau settles in Mount Seir because his livestock and possessions were too numerous to dwell with Jacob in the land of Canaan. You may recall that the exact same scenario first surfaced in chapter 13, when Lot and Abraham separate because of their many possessions and the land's inability to support them both. What do we make of these passages? Lot, Abraham's nephew, from whom come the Moabites and Ammonites, separates from Abraham, just as Jacob and Esau do. Lot and Esau become Israel's neighboring peoples in the land of Canaan. The separation of these people groups from Israel is not the product of violence, but rather a necessary consequence of their blessing and prosperity. This observation appears to contradict Gerard's assertion that all culture and civilization begins with the founding murder. Mimetic theorists will often point to the founding of Rome, which involved Romulus killing his brother Remus, and Cain's slaughter of Abel in the Hebrew Bible, which spawns the Canaanite peoples. Yet, in the patriarchal narrative story about Genesis of the Moabites, the Ammonites and Edom, we just don't see this founding murder. Although the purists will argue that this primitive act of violence is always concealed by later writers, you really need to squint hard to see any hint of it in the Genesis narrative. Far from murdering Lot, Abraham rescues him. Following Jacob's conversion, he enjoys a cordial relationship with his brother Esau and no actual violence takes place between them. I'm not trying to say that Gerard's founding murder theory is wrong, but just that the patriarchal narratives as we've studied them so far don't seem to fit this pattern, or at least there's very little evidence to suggest this pattern is evident in the Pentateuchal narrative. Perhaps this is what sets Israel's narrative apart from other ancient stories. The patriarchs spawn a new civilization and culture out of their abundance and prosperity, in contrast to Cain's descendants, whose culture is founded upon Abel's murder. Maybe this is the whole point of the narrative, to create something new, a new society, a new culture, which is not founded upon the old patterns of mimetic violence and scapegoating. Even though Israel's neighbors are painted in a poor light, they still find their origins as Israel's relatives in the patriarchal narrative. 
This familial connection encourages Israel to live at peace with their neighbours, although at times they may act like jerks. Even when people are jerks, we must endeavour to live at peace with them by denouncing mimetic rivalry and avoiding acts of retaliation. The remainder of chapter 36 lists Esau's descendants, which emphasises Ephraim's significance in Israel's story. For all the anti-Edomite sentiment in the Genesis patriarchal narrative, perhaps this genealogy reminds us that Israel and Edom, although they are separate, although they're forced to live in separate lands because they are so prosperous, they are still one in the sense that they are still brothers. And maybe this encourages us to look at the other side of the fence, other peoples in different communities who are different to us, and see them not so much as a dangerous outsider, but rather as a friend, as a fellow human, with the same needs and desires for love, joy, peace and prosperity that we have ourselves. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.